This is Acacia Thompson for the Brooklyn Public Library, Greenpoint Oral History Project, In Our Streets, Our Stories. It's August 4th, 2018 on Kent Avenue in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And I'm here, Kent Street. Kent Street. Yeah, Thank that's you. That's a big difference, by the way. Though. No Kent one Street. Mail at you unless they write Avenue in it. Right. Okay. Let me get that guy. Here on Thank Kent you. Street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I'm here with Kim and Scott Frazier. Hi, Kim and Scott. Hello. Hi. <laughs> so, um, if you could first tell me about how, how long you've been in the neighborhood and how you got involved in environmental activism in the neighborhood. Well, we moved here um, the year we got married. I you moved came in first a, in September by yourself. 1980 to prepare the apartment for you because we were getting married in October. Actually, I got moved in in October, I think, because we got married in October 25th. So I was getting ready the apartment for you to come in. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to that. I interrupted you before. The, the part about Debbie, because we were talking about this house that we're in now on Kent Street. And my friend, um, Debbie Layler, ended up being the person who lived here. And it was with Debbie and uh, Inez Pasher and Nadine Chino that we formed our first environmental group, which was called GASP, Greenpoint Against Smell and Pollution. And um, these were th uh, these women were really fantastic, and you know I just had to join them because they were so focused and determined, and so that that's how we really began because we were fighting the uh, incinerator, the old incinerator that's been taken down, and also the um, sewage treatment plant which had not been upgraded, so there was very um, serious, you know, scent problems stinking problems, especially in rain like this, you would definitely, it couldn't handle the capacity. So all of a sudden the whole neighborhood would Rainy be. days would, would be sad days because of the, what happened at the incinerator and the treatment plant. So when you normally rejoice uh, that it's a, a rainy day, like Kim's saying, the overflow would, and it still does the same thing, but it, it, we can't smell it, but it would, it would upset the entire treatment plant. So this horrible, sickening aroma would come wafting down the block. We are two blocks from, um, on Java Street, we are two blocks from the treatment plant. And also, beautiful sunny days when there was this wonderful wind, this breeze that you always want, a nor the nor'easter, where the wind comes out of the northeast. Those would be sad days for me because we were in uh, the downwind of, uh, that would mean we're downwind of the incinerator. And as we learned about more about what was coming out of the incinerator, uh, and we began to study and become educated in the, about the environment, uh, I realized that as Kim put laundry out on our laundry line, that uh, cancer-causing dioxin was, was uh, raining down on our laundry. And we would actually, br uh, in the morning uh, on our car, we would sweep off the uh, dioxin ash off of the car in the morning. So that gave us, uh, you know, fired our, our desire to shut down the incinerator. And I think that was kind of the beginning of our involvement in the neighborhood, the neighborhood activism was the, the insult. And really, if, if had we not lived downwind, right downwind from the incinerator, and two blocks from the water treatment plant, I don't know that we would have gotten involved. But it was literally sort of opening your door, opening your window, and, and being attacked by, by uh, that's how we got involved, right? I mean, that's when we really, really got involved. Yeah, and I think it's so ironic that 
once we entered the environmental world of learning about Greenpoint and Williamsburg, it was the things that don't smell, that don't leave ash, that don't leave residue, that really scared us. Because at least with the ash and the smell to your senses, it, it could alert you like, uh-oh, there, there's something wrong here. Let's go find out about it. Should this be the way it is? Or are we just stuck? I mean, I think maybe I, longer than you, Scott, just thought, hey, this is city life. This is urban living. We live in an industrial uh, landscape here. And generations before us, everybody put up with all these kinds of things, ash and smell. And, you know, we're here because of the affordable rents. And this is just life. But, you know, when we, when we started to learn about it, especially after we got into GASP, um, it was nothing compared to what we would end up learning in the next decade or so about radioactive waste, about talk, uh, you know, goop under the soil that you couldn't see at the time, you couldn't smell it. And also these little factories were, that were all around with maybe 20 employees at the most um, with their short little stacks maybe just going two stories in the air. We had no idea that manufacturing plastic, manufacturing vinyl, um, metal plating, a lot of the small industries that were around here at that time, they were the most toxic. They were the most scary. And it was really, uh, it was really the Hunter College study. When, when Hunter came, I always say, when Hunter came to town, Hunter College, with their uh, master's degree students who wanted to do a um, study on Greenpoint and Williamsburg, that's when they started to open up for us because they gave seminars and, and it was all over Greenpoint and Williamsburg. A very famous Barry Commoner from Queens College came and they brought slideshows and they were really trying to educate. Their whole program at Hunter at the time was called, um, well I have the exact title here, but it was a community division of the environmental sciences program. The idea being that most people don't know. Most people were like us, like you're just, you know, walking around urban environments leading your life and you don't really know the exact reason why this could be very harmful to you and your kids until they come with their uh, master's class students and give these seminars and talks and all of a sudden, you know, little by little, you, your brain starts to open up and you're like, wow, thank God, wow. Not thank God, but I mean, at least we're learning about it. And when they would do their opening remarks, this is the thing that to this day, I, I just can never, I, I am shocked that this is the way they would open the remarks. They were sitting around a conference table over at Hunter College, and they, this was after Bhopal, the big accident, the DuPont accident in India, and um, Bhopal, and Bhopal. And um, I don't know how many people, like 20,000 people died or something that yeah. night. They had a leak from the manufacturing plant and everybody was asleep, but it's Bhopal, India, it's very hot, all the windows are open, and the polluted air came in through the windows and killed the people in their beds because there was no warning, there was no indication that they were starting to breathe something that was gonna kill them. So Hunter was like, you know, hmm, we really should look around the United States and see if there's another area of the country where you have as much residential living as, you know, next to a factory. And after they looked in other parts of the country, they were like, you know what? 
we don't have to go anywhere. We'll just go across the river to Greenpoint and Williamsburg because this is an area that has so-called light manufacturing and residential building right next to each other. I mean, especially back in the 80s, you could be next to one small garage and the building could go up four stories and the windows on say uh, two, three and four were open onto the roof of that small garage. And in that garage, they could be you know, manufacturing plastic bags or metal plating operation. Well, and let me just work on the chronology a little bit. So but before you get super detailed though, I mean just so in the flow, those early years, um, just the date, like what, what we're talking about, what date was that, like 86, 88? The studies were complete in 89. And when so do you think we started One gas? of them was the first one. Yeah, I think gas started 86, 87. And we were, so we were, that's why they came to one of the organizations, also So Blah. we had been here, at that point we had been here six, seven years. But really from the beginning, you know, we started <clears throat> and with that group, I remember we were having meetings maybe, I forget, do you remember how many often we'd have meetings, our little gas group? No. We would have a little regular meeting maybe once a month, uh, once every, I can't remember that often. But then I remember there was a little newsletter. I think it was, I don't know who started that. We had our little gas newsletter. Debbie. That Debbie started. And also what's interesting is from the beginning, it was, uh, Inez, who I don't know how she got involved, why she was friends with Nadine and with Debbie. No, but she was already active on she was the active. South Williamsburg side. And she was Latino woman, proud Latina. I think she was active with El Puente. She had deep environmental right. She's retired now in Florida, so you could actually find her and talk to her. Um, she... She taught us a lot. She taught us a lot, and she was already a, a political activist. Right. Uh, you know, so she came into the group with ideas that we we didn't right. have at all. So I, w I think that the seeds were it was fortuitous that we had already Debbie had great uh, knowledge. Uh, so and Nadine was involved politically, and yeah. So I think that was another reason why we we sort of had a base. Kim got very involved with the with the Hunter study and uh, the point pollution in the neighborhood. And um, so then we started, it wasn't just our little group then, then we, we w there were other people we, we then met who were involved. So the one I would really tip my hat to, and definitely should talk to her before she passes, is Irene Kermitovich. She is a legend. She's an a, a, a absolute pillar of, of the environmental movement in Greenpoint. Her husband has a funeral home, which is, I think, on the corner of Manhattan Avenue in Freeman, I believe. It's still there. Well, it's um, there, but it doesn't operate doesn't anymore. operate. hasn't operated for yeah. years. He's the passed, long there. passed. Irene lives in this building with her son, Paul, I think is his name. He's her caregiver. Um, she was a tiger, and she was basically involved every single day. She'd either be at a community board meeting or a protest meeting or she was had her nose in everything. And then her sidekick was a woman, uh, uh, Elizabeth Ronchetti. And Ronchetti had this great hats. She looked like Bella Abzug. She would show up with an amazing hat, a different one at every event. You never saw her with the same hat ever. And Irene and, and, Irene and, and uh, Elizabeth would start 
haranguing the politicians and yelling and screaming, and they would be the leaders, and we would all. But they were in guap too. So, so gas well, they weren't was gas. one, and yeah. they weren't in gas. They had their own group. Guap, I'm telling you. No, they they had their own group. It was called Greenpoint something or something. It was it was their own group, and they they were before guap. Was it Concerned Citizens of Greenpoint? Concerned Citizens of Greenpoint. It was. Okay, yep. I forgot. And they they predated guap. They were they were it. And so we learned from them, and then the cause at the time was the incinerator. First. And so, first. So we would go, I remember vividly, and, and another ch uh, chapter just passed, uh, Joe Dara, who I don't know if anybody told you about, he was the last living longshoreman in Greenpoint. He just passed this month, uh, and he had his wake uh, in, in July. Uh, Joe would be at the march, I remember the, like a banner, let's say, and it would be El Puente would have a banner, or, or maybe Concerned Citizens had a banner. And Irene would be in the front, Irene Klementovich, Elizabeth Ronchetti, Joe Dara, the kind of like across the front, jo Joe Lentall would be there, uh, our councilman at that time, probably Gurges. And we would march, like literally march down Manhattan Avenue uh, to shut down the incinerator, let's say. And, um, and Kim and, and Debbie and Nadine and Inez Pasher, we would all be there as well. And we were a ragtag little group of yeah, people. Yeah. We, we didn't. You, it, well, you wouldn't stop traffic if you saw us. Yeah. 15 people, 10, 20 people. 20. And, and no one was involved really uh, broadly in the neighborhood. It was just this little ragtag group. And, and mainly with, uh, with Elizabeth Ronchetti and with Irene would be the senior ladies of the neighborhood. The guys really didn't show up. These women were like, I think, the, the post-World War II female suffragists yeah well i don't know like they're, that well they went they, back it, that far but, but i mean no i mean they're like the the you know move forward a generation that's who they were yeah and their husbands were probably right. the vets right. if they had husbands and these were you know women that worked in uh i think lots of what we would call administrative assistant positions in some of these small factories um and they were just, they just had this spirit to them, which was this, you know, what's going on here is wrong. And we're, even if they put us down at every meeting and, you know, kind of try to shush them up, um, we don't care. We're not embarrassed. We'll be back. We'll be back for the next meeting. The mantra was always um, people feeling that Greenpoint was getting shafted. Yeah. And taking advantage of. Taking advantage of. Which they were. And you, we're not going to take it. I can remember Irene and, and, and Elizabeth. We're not taking it anymore. You can't, you like know, that. just, you oh. can't take advantage of us. We're going to fight and back. And remember the one We man? know, we know what you're doing. So they w it would be <laughs> DEP or it would be. Uh, it didn't it matter. It would be any agencies. The mobile oil, when we began to be aware of the mobile oil spill and the meetings with mobile and then. We had a citizen action committee that called the CAC, which was related to our work with the incinerator. Um, we, they would drown us in boxes and boxes. I remember we used to get boxes of paper from the DEP. Kim would put them under our sink, and literally there would be stacks of papers, thousands and thousands of pages of studies 
we, we were drowning in stuff. Well, that's sort of the way they responded to you. If you right. stood up, and you, especially if you weren't that generation, we were in our 30s when this was when we were learning from these women. And uh, we would stand up too at the meeting and say whatever our little piece was, which would sound different than theirs. And then they'd look out like, okay, you two, we're going to shut you up. What, what's your address? We'll send you the reports of why this is okay. And then a UPS truck would pull up in front of our house on Java Street, and out would come these boxes that were like, you know, square little boxes, a foot by a foot, and box after box would come into the hallway. And, you know, you could never go through all or, that. Or understand what You it couldn't was. understand. But it was sort of their way to say, don't say we didn't give you the information. Don't say we didn't do the study. Here, look through this material and you'll see. So. The amazing thing I will say, though, that, you know, I know we're contesting history and we could talk for, for days without stopping, but um, I would say the, the uh, incredible part of the story is we did, I feel like we shut down the incinerator. That baby shut down. They took it down, brick by brick. That stack, which was really, really horrific. Um, we learned through that, like you learned through everything. We learned about source separation. We learned about why dioxin was formed. It required plastics to be incinerated with um, organic matter. I mean, they throw everything together, and the beautiful chemistry of, of a fire, you would then produce... Uh, these various things, of the most toxic of which was dioxin. Do you remember the other ones? I, I, I can't remember the other Heavy metals, but also mercury would, uh, would be coming out into the air. We, we had that. Lead, of course, which we, we have a lot of. Um, so we learned then, we became from there, when we shut down the incinerator and actually shut it down, the city went around and looked at different incinerators, shut down some of them. Uh, that's when the city was looking again at its strategy for handling waste. We and also yeah, and the evidence was undeniable. Yeah, there wouldn't, there couldn't be anyone that could say, well, maybe this doesn't cause cancer. You know, that's what they'd like to say about all the little factories. Well, we fought for years it, about the scrubber. Remember the scrubber they would tell us about? Well, that was going to be on the new resource recovery. Well, plan. no, but they, they they upgraded our stack before they closed it down. Well, we have a scrubber and. We're going to upgrade the scrubber, and when we put the scrubber in, we're going to reduce the amount. And Irene would be like, oh, you're not going to do that. A scrubber can't do that. Yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I know that's a lot. They yeah. never swore they anything. Never, they, they would use old-fashioned words like, yeah. that's a lot of hogwash, you know, yeah. stuff well, like that. Well, they occasionally swore. But uh, so we were fighting and then involved in that. And then um, we also began, like Kim's saying, the, uh, the, 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 the sources of pollution there was the, the – ExxonMobil oil spill, that was another learning curve, and it was larger than the Exxon Valdez in terms of the amount of ga gallons of oil spilled. Then we learned uh, uh, also about all the uh, unlicensed waste transfer stations, open dumps in the neighborhood, and there were 35, 40. We had more than the, anyone in no, the we city. We had 50 garbage transfer stations okay, so before they rezoned. They we were all 50. through Williamsburg and Greenpoint. They were Greenpoint. all in the water. Front. They were just corrugated metal, and the big giant dumps would, would come in and out constantly all day long, dump garbage from all over the city, and then you'd have all the you know the airborne debris, and God knows what was in, the, in there, and then they would pile it up there until finally they would cart it somewhere else. So, yeah, we had that. Uh, Kim's talked about the heavy metals. We used to go to uh, the little playground, American playground, with our son who was two years old. So we're talking about 1984. 
before we had gas, and we would come back woozy. We would all be like, do you have a headache? Uh, yeah, I have a headache. What do you, and we, we figured it out. It was the plastic bag manufacturer. We didn't really figure it out, Scott. Now we figured it but out. But I knew it then. It At was, the it time? Was, yeah, I learned that. We learned through the environmental movement what it was, but there was a, a, a plastic bag manufacturer, which is now where the Brooklyn Expo is, that big building, and they were pumping out tons of toxic. Well, and you can see that's, a, that's only a one-story building, and the garage doors open up onto American Playground. Invented so right into American So whatever Playground. toxins are swirling around in that uh, warehouse are going to come out flat onto the playground next door. Um, so we got that. I wouldn't say woozy. I, I just felt really tired. I like, would have had. I, I would think I was just a bored mother. Like, I know. I'm not. This isn't pollution. This is just me going, oh, my God. How much longer before that kid takes a nap? You know? And then I, I came to realize, I think now, you know, no. There was a physical thing happening to you, probably. I remember the headaches. Very distinct things. Okay. And so, what year was it that uh, the incinerator was in '94? Mm, if you want to say, I would say earlier than that, but I, we have to look. But I think I would say, if I were to guess a year, I would say maybe, maybe around '92. I don't know. Some and, and some of my research, I, I read that the some neighbors were concerned about the uh, city taking it down, and that there was a pushback about just wanting to leave it there as a relic. Do you right. remember anything about that? A little that? bit. Were you guys part of that? Did you? No, no. we, we so weren't involved at that point with that part of it. No. We wouldn't have uh, thought and it was a good relic. Our, 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 um, our arc, our environmental arc, which it goes to, to, to very right now, um, we sort of have this uh, arc. Uh, Kim's an actor. I, I, I made documentaries or filmed TV uh, programs. So we would have uh, in education, awareness, depression, and so and activism, depression. So we would be uh, educated, environmentally active. We go through fits and starts, cycles in a way, with the environment. We would do a major fight, like let's try to close down the incinerator. We did. Irene led that fight. We were part of that fight. Then we would learn, become educated, aware, and then the tedium of the reality of the living with the problem we would then begin to be depressed and look for bliss. So we would then stop and then try to restore our souls or you know, do something. And then we would we, we'd cycle back into the next battle. And the next battle, one of them was the, uh, and it wasn't, we weren't as, as involved, but was the, uh, the power plant they want to put down next to uh, Bayside Fuel. The, uh, was the name of that one? No, it was the resource recovery well, plant the resource that they recovery were going to put next to the Brooklyn Navy right. Yard. There's that one. Across from the whole Hasidic communities, right. housing with So we marched against that. We marched against And we against weren't, we, we were in one trans of our, gas that was one of our depressed stages. Uh, yeah. We weren't that involved with trans right. gas. We read about it, but at that point we were in one of well, our we, slumps. We, yeah, we were a little slumpy, but yeah, so we kind of, we would get tired and sad. And then, uh, you know, that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, like over the course of as many years as we've been doing it, uh, I don't know. We're, we're pretty emotional and uh, idealistic, at least we were. And so after putting in a lot of hours going to meetings and standing up in front of uh, uh, politicians or other places, just the rest of the community trying to get them on board, because that's one of the things that I, I read, uh, um, something I wrote in one of these folders, and uh, it was hard to get the long-time, really generational, Greenpointers on board with you, because 
except for these incredible, you know, core group of women. Uh, and they were kind of, they were unusual. Um, because people felt so downtrodden and put upon, and they really felt like, you know, if you really want to have a clean environment, you just got to get out of Greenpoint. Just move. Like, stop complaining. Like, that's what our children are doing. They went to college now, and they're moving out to Long Island and Connecticut and New Jersey. And that, if you guys are, you know, because this is not going to change. This is an industrial neighborhood. It, it is what provided the livelihood for our families going back generations. And we, our expectation is not that we should have clean air or that we should have um, a lot of green space. We're kind of stuck with what we've got. We're glad we helped the next generation up and out. And so, you know, they'd be like, Kim, you're great, you're enthusiastic, but no, I'm not coming to a meeting. No, I'm not coming to a march. I mean, they wouldn't say that so straight out to my face, but they would listen to me and nod, and I just knew. It was pretty lonely. It was lonely. So I, that was another reason why the activism during those years went up and down, because uh, then my friend Debbie, who started GASP, she moved to Virginia. So she kind of did what the, the old timers were saying you should do, Kim. And we lost several um, good, really good friends that had little children at the time, like the Dailies, right. moved to upstate New York, and um, I'll think of a couple more. Well, that's where we started the whole thing. I was going to say the, the whole house while we're here. I, the irony of that is that um, just as the Hunter Study Report was about to come out, I don't think it had even been released. No, yet. one of them had. No, there's two. But, but Debbie, our friend who owned this house, got this report. And she was so horrified by what the report said that she basically, within months, moved and left the state. But also her husband had a good opportunity. I know, but if you ask her the real truth, the push was that. This, this, what this report said was so horrifying that she pulled up stakes and moved to Virginia. Also, right, right there are the a lot water. of factors going on. You know, now it's there were the educational factors. Where where are the kids going to go to school if you know we I'm say all you. right? You say it was the environment. Anyway, it got to feel a little lonely because uh, even the people that on a day to day basis I had really strong contacts with because their children were the same age as mine, and that's how you make your best friends back in those years. Um, one by one, it seemed like they were all leaving, and Scott and I were still hanging tough. You know. And uh, I have to say, Scott, that I think uh, a, a lot of the reasons you and I personally continued to hang tough was that, Scott, one of the projects he was working on at the time was um, called um, Earthkeeping. And he was going to three different locations to talk to people, an urban location, a uh, the Native American location in Washington State with the old, old, for, old growth forests. And I was going on some of these with him, including carting, you know, little five-year-old Chris with us. And those, those Native American speakers really got into me. Me too. Yeah. And they were um, teaching us about uh, some, to take something from the earth. I get emotional about this. I'm sorry. It's only good if it's okay for seven generations into the future. You could go ahead and take a tree, make a canoe out of it. If you knew that seven generations, and you blessed the tree, and you blessed the canoe, and off you went, and the food that you needed to eat. But, you know, their slogan that stayed in my mind so much was, how much water do you really need? How much air do you really need? And I got so sort of swept up in that story. And that, you know, living here in Greenpoint, I was like, 
you know, I'm going to walk the talk. I'm going to try to stand up for this place, you people, my people, and I'm going to try to bring that sensibility to the urban city because I really felt like when people talk about the redwoods or they talk about uh, beautiful places in the environment that are being destroyed and polluted, uh, they're always forgetting like the children and that there's so many children here and they want to play and run and they want to see a river and we have all of that right here. It's just that everything is so polluted and inaccessible that this urban kids are sort of, sort of just tossed aside like we don't have an environment. At the time, you almost felt living here that you're here to work. Well, your famous you're question to Billy was waterfront. You said, you said what's Yeah, the little, little Billy, he's still here too, Billy Garrix, who lived across he's the street. He's now a bus driver. And he was one of Chris's best friends. And I was trying to, you know, Chris, we would drag him to these uh, Hunter College-sponsored seminars. And uh, also, they, they, some of them, when we tried to make the 197A plan, they encouraged you to bring your children and we'll have a child's table and we'll have popsicle sticks and clay and paint and we'll let them draw. You know, if they're too young to write and they can't verbalize really what they want, just sit down at the table and you guys draw a picture of what you want. So since we were dragging Chris, I felt, and he's our only child, I felt a little bad that every Saturday we're like, come on, Chris, we're going to the underneath this Greenpoint Savings Bank for our uh, meeting about the waterfront. So one day I, I said to Billy Garrick's the boy across the street, and there were nine, there were about nine then. And I said, um, hey Billy, you wanna come? We're going to a waterfront meeting this Saturday. Wanna come with us? And he, he looked at me and he said, what's a waterfront? And so I looked down the end of Java Street and at the time there was a big green warehouse, like one of the uh, facades of the pier where the boats, I guess, mm. used to come in the ships and unload. And that was sort of how they kept people, the sales, pe people that wanted to buy some of the goods off the boats and stuff. And that was sort of like an entryway. Well, it was entryway to the pier. The pier. Yeah. yeah. Sliding door. Yeah. And it was all already, you know, not being used every anymore. Every block in it was Greenpoint, every waterfront block here would go down to the water. And at the end of the block, you would get to the pier. Every block had a pier. And so the Java Street pier, at the end of Java Street, there was a green, like Kim's saying, a green it looked like the, the, the end of a building went up and there was a peaked roof and at the top of the roof was a tall uh, flagpole. You could see this and, in pictures. And, and, and you know, so All, every, every street, street ended at the pier and then from there, obviously, you would go out the depth of the pier and, it, and as the goods came in and got offloaded from the ships, they would maybe stay out of the rain, then get offloaded onto carts or trucks, then moved out through the city put on railroads. So anyway, it's it's our history, but that's what that's the end of every block. Uh, and when I after Billy said this to me, I looked down the end of our block, the end of Java, yeah. and there was this big green, it would look like a wall to me. You couldn't see any water even on the edges of it. It was wide enough that it covered. And I thought, "Oh my god." You know, his parent, no one's taking him to the waterfront. He doesn't know. He lives on our block. He sits on the stoops. He's a good little ball player. He plays every possible game with a ball that you could play on a sidewalk, and he's good at it. But he's never going to the waterfront. He doesn't go to the waterfront. He doesn't even really leave town that much. He really, except for going to school and church, he doesn't really leave the block that much. So of course he came to the meeting with us and um, drew his picture. Bo both boys, I think, drew basketball courts at the time. They were nine. 
Um, but it, I never forgot that story about him not even knowing he's two blocks from the Great East River and the beautiful, iconic view of Manhattan. And this kid, he's nine already, he has no idea that that's his neighborhood, that his neighborhood is a waterfront neighborhood. The other thing Kim uh, Kim's, uh, always says, and it's, it's, she's right, it, and it's sort of our mantra now, that all the, all the activities, all the waterfront development, and they definitely do not keep this in mind, Kim believes that sight lines down blocks are sacred. Every street is sacred that meets the waterfront, and that you should never, ever block the view. You should never ever obstruct or keep the grid. Keep keep. Uh, you should always be able to go along a public street public. all the way to the end of the block. So no one to can ever waterfront. say, "Sorry, you're not in the wrong." Nothing. You're in the right, wrong nothing space. should obstruct that view. And if you're going to take down the historic piers, which obviously were there before, then that's an open vista to the water, and those sightways are sacred. They should never be obstructed. Now, in our current world we live in. No one has that sensitivity because as you look down at Franklin Street now looking north, you are completely, the view is obstructed by a building, which is the affordable building in front of the high rises behind them. So that blocks the view. That's not right. You shouldn't block the view. Leave the view open. It's sacred. It gives the feeling, the neighborhood a feeling of space, this light, is, you are on a air. Waterfront. And it's sort of like, like Kim saying, um, what is a waterfront? These things that we've learned over the years, um, they're so interwoven. You know, you can't remove the environment from the human spirit, right? The soul, the, the psyche, the happiness, the uh, spirituality, whatever you want to call that, it's all intertwined. So things like sightways, um, amenities like trees, um, all of these things which elevate your spirit, um, like Kim's saying, we we uh, we sort of we've dug in and we felt like uh, someone's always going to be downwind of something, and we feel that the fabric of, of uh, the environmental fabric of the planet, <laughs> not much just Greenpoint, uh, is at risk. We feel that it's uh, we feel like we're at a time of of great crisis, of great peril with the environment. So. Everything we've learned in Greenpoint, and I've been privileged enough to learn in my work, and then Kim is part of it. Like she, she would come on the scouts with Chris and things that we learned. Um, pri privileged enough to work on some projects where we did learn, and I would say for sure the Native American uh, experience for the two of us uh, was one. I think life changing. Life changing. Life changing experience. Yeah. Um, and we we believe that uh, that. We're sort of, you know, you have a canary in the coal mine uh, analogy that everyone loves. I, I love that analogy. I do believe that uh, Greenpoint is a little bit like the canary in the coal mine. That we, we are the little canary that have had uh, beyond our share of environmental insult. Um, no, no community should have to bear what we have borne uh, in the community over the, over the years. Uh, we are the broad shoulders that America was constructed we're, we're the, the black arts that, that are talked about in Greenpoint. Uh, we, we are the, the, the back, the workroom, you know. And obviously, I'm educated. I didn't work in a factory, these factories. Um, but when I say we, I mean the, the, the you know, sort of the broader we uh, who, who live in the community. Um, and so the legacy is one, I think, a special one. 
So we we uh, we sort of we have a voice. I think we do have a voice, and we, at times we felt very uh, beleaguered and that no one's hearing our voice. Uh, other times we've had successes. The most recent one with uh, uh, with the neighborhood is the the, the hundred and seventy million dollars that we helped to get cry out out of the the. Uh, the coffers of the city for uh, to complete Bushwick Grant Park. We were part of that, uh, but the battle, we came out of retirement for that battle. Uh, and we have a grandson now living in the community. And like I always like to say, Kim always uh, can't believe that I put this together, but um, Kim's family is probably one of the oldest, she, she's one of the longest time Greenpoint residents uh, in the neighborhood. You might not find anyone else who can say what she can say, which is six generations of her family are Greenpointers. Mm -hmm. There's huge gaps in there. Like I um, was not born in Greenpoint. So, so I was not raised it's there. A, it's so when every time he goes into this, I'm like, Scott, you can't say that because but I wasn't. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story though, Kim. It's, okay. it's a story of America and it it's, uh, includes flight from the neighborhood and, and definitely there's a big giant gap in there. But the story is that her relatives came from Poland to Greenpoint, to Eagle Street. Her great grandparents came from Warsaw settled on Eagle Street, had a daughter named Estelle. The family name then was Wilgowski. They went to St. Cyril's Church. They uh, moved over to what was then called Winthrow Park, which is now McGulwick Park. And they attended St. Stan's, completely Polish family, very little if English, if any. And they had this daughter Estella, who was courted by a Polish soldier from New Haven, Connecticut. But he was West from Warsaw. Back. He ended up in New Haven, but he was Warsaw. He's from Warsaw. I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't know that. That I don't know. But he he uh, he wooed Estelle, and Estelle grudgingly. Okay, Estelle was born in Greenpoint. Correct. But she married Walter, who correct. was born in Poland, correct. and he even fought in the Polish army. That's what so said. no, you were saying I don't think so. I don't think so. You're no, he was born in Poland. He's a he's a Polish soldier. That was grandparents, not great grandparents, Scott. That's my grandmother's husband. Right. I never met him because he died but when I'm my going father back, was 10. But at Greenpoint, you go back further than that. Your grandmother's parents. I know that, but now right. we had moved off of that generation. Well, me, oh. So anyway, her, her mother's generation is second generation. Then she had a son, Robert, who grew up, he was born in New Haven and, and grew up there. Kim was born up there. And then she comes here. And things, the, the, the line is broken. Well, you Can made I, me come here when I married yeah, you. I made her come here. It was Scott's fault. And she didn't want to come here uh, because she remembered I growing up. I wanted to live in a Woody Allen well, movie she'd come to and be on the Upper West Side. She'd come to funerals. I wanted a dining room and an elevator, and you brought me here. I know. It's true. She wanted, she, she, so she'd been here to weddings and funerals at the Polonaise, places like that in the neighborhood. <coughs> thought the place As a was, child, yeah. Thought the place was a dump, which it was. And uh, no, it's true. And uh, she came here kicking and screaming. Uh, and then so, but the strangest thing of all is her father got Alzheimer's. Came to live in this house. And the last five years of his life, he lived and died, died in, in this life. house. Yeah. So that is the, my, that's what made me realize, holy cow, that's the third generation. Back, yeah. So he died, and that's three. He's number three. Kim has lived here most of her life. That's number four. Now. Our son is born in the neighborhood, here. still is in the neighborhood, he's number five. And our grandson is born in the neighborhood is number six. So, so what I'm saying is there's six generations going back. I'm just part of the party because I'm married into it. But uh, it goes back six generations. So all to say that 
through some strange, crazy, uh, why, why are we here kind of thing. Um, I don't know. But that's, there's a generational, six generations of, of green pointers who are related to her through Polish. Well, uh, yeah, and it's also part of that immigrant story right now that we're hearing so much about that they're, they're such a threat. They don't, you know, they just come here to freeload. They don't pay taxes. They steal. They commit crimes. And then, you know, you, you just look at my family as a little example. And everybody in it is just as far from that as possible. I mean, they worked so hard. They stayed in Greenpoint, the yeah. sisters. Their kids did get up and out. Yeah. But, um, you know, my grandmother's worked in the Domino Sugar Factory. And uh, my uncle was a longshoreman. And he lived in one of those railroad flats over there on Russell Street and came up to visit us in Connecticut with his big black limo and his cigarette and, you know, his black skin tight pants and he was just so cool. We looked at like, who is that? We did hear that, oh, that's your Uncle Joe. He's a longshoreman. And it was just like, yeah, he looks like somebody from Brooklyn. He really does. He looks like he just came out of a movie about Brooklyn. Anyway, I'm just saying that. They worked so hard, they stayed the course. And you just know they wanted good things for their kids too. But it's so interesting that, that you did come back oh. and came back and ended up helping the neighborhood in such a, a, a pronounced way, you know, and s creating stewardship and teaching stewardship to your family and passing it down to the sixth generation. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and the story, the famous story is uh, I had asked Kim to marry me, and uh, I was living in the Lower East Side. She was living in the Upper East Side. And, of course, never had been to Greenpoint, never even heard of Greenpoint. And so when I asked her father, w w I'd like to take your daughter, hand of your daughter in marriage, if it's okay with you. <laughs> and he said yes. Um, and then, of course, I think that day, he, he just, I said, he said, well, where are you guys going to, you know, we're talking about where we would move, where we, you know, we're living in Live sin. Together. We're both living in our Her own family's very religious Catholic, mine's Protestant, we're not living in sin together, Clark. <laughs> so, um, so then I said, I'm not sure. We're looking. Everything's expensive. We, we, Kim wants to live in the Upper West Side, but we, we just can't find a place. It's very expensive. He said, well, uh, I think you should look in Greenpoint. Okay, let me just tell my story. Then you tell your story. He said, it's, it's cheap, it's safe, and it's clean. Those three things. things. Cheap, safe, clean. And so go there, uh, you should go and look in Greenpoint. So I listened, I took a note, I wrote down, in my mind made a mental note of Greenpoint, and uh, I started looking in the, uh, the real estate listings for Greenpoint apartments. And I thought, that's weird, there's no Greenpoint listings. I wonder what that is. So then one day there was a Greenpoint listing and I came out, it was on Lorimer Street. It was $500, and I said to Kim, hey, it's kind of pricey, it's 500 bucks, I, I don't think so. So she said, yeah, that's too much money. So then, uh, we were looking all over Manhattan. We couldn't find an apartment. So then one day I said, listen, I think we should just get on the train because I'd looked on a map, a map. And I said, you know, we should just get on the train and go out to Greenpoint. And she said, I don't know. I don't want to go out there. That's a dump. So, <laughs> so we got on the train with her friend Janet Carafa and the two of them, she, Kim's an actor. She was uh, a mime. 
And and the two of them on the train, I'll never forget. We I guess we're on the L train or something. No, we got on the train. We switched somewhere and got right. on the train. But they're laughing and cutting up. There's no, nobody on the we're train. Making fun of him. Making fun of me. You, you know. The yeah, whole the thing G was, was empty. Joke. It was like you should have been going somewhere. We get up out on Nassau Street, out of the subway. And we get up out there, and they're laughing. <laughs> we're looking all They're around. ready to just go back to Manhattan and, you know, have a coffee or something. So we get up out of the subway, and I see this little marquee, this little store, uh, storefront that said uh, Maluski, and then it said real estate, Evergreen Realty. And I said, Ken, there's a realty place for you. I'm going to go across the street. I walked in there. And the woman, there's nowhere on the street. It was empty. Everything was empty. Sophie Chaco. I walk in. I Sophie Chaco is so little and old. She's behind her desk. You hardly see her behind the desk. She says, yes. She's not that old. She's probably the age we are yeah, right now. Yeah, we're younger than us now. She said, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, my, my uh, fiance and I are getting married. This was in uh, September, I guess, September of 1980. I said, we're getting married uh, next month, and we're looking for an apartment. And she said, Really? And she don't, don't she says, don't go anywhere. So then at that point, Kim, I don't know, they, had, they didn't want to come into the office. They were so loud. Yeah, you're exaggerating. So she picks up the phone and she says to this guy, uh, kind of in sotto voce, she says, I have a man here. I think you're going to like him. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, and so, yes. And, she, and so she, we go out into this monster Oldsmobile. I swear it was made like a 1960 Oldsmobile. With the wings on the back of the it. Giant. The fins, those fins. And, and the doors that, you, you know, when they shut, they go ka-chunk. They weigh like, door weighed like 1,000 pounds. We get in this car. She could hardly see over the steering wheel. Kim is in the back seat, Janet and I. We go trundling up Manhattan <laughs> Avenue, and she turns left on Java, and, she put, and, and no trees in the block. No people on Lots the Lots of places to park, too, because she didn't have right any up, trouble just parking right in front pulls of the house. Right she didn't in, go around or yeah. anything. Gets out, walks into this building. It's a Polish family. They speak very little English. They live husband, on the second floor. Very little English. We go up to the second floor. No, they're on, we go to the third floor. The Sobaczynskis were on the second. Yes, third floor. The available apartment was on the third. That's correct. Completely <laughs> empty. Not, uh, you know, whoever had left, everything was cleaned up. The, the walls were all painted this beautiful the yellow. The moldings were all painted really white. You could, every, there wasn't a speck of dust anywhere. You could have just sat down right on the floor and had your dinner. And we look out, there's a backyard, and it's got a green little grass. And they tell us the rent is $250 in 1980. So Scott <laughs> sees the backyard, and he asks Mr. Sobachinsky, Eugene Sobachinsky, would you, would you let me plant some tomatoes back there? And Mr. Sobachinsky looks at him like, no, you don't go back there. So it was like, okay, okay, just was wondering, you know. Um, anyway, Scott was ready to just like dig in his pockets and give, give them some money right then and there, as he should be. But I was like, no, let's, let's go talk about this. So we tell them we're going to go think about it overnight. We get in the car. We get one. So, uh, Mrs. Uh, Sophie Chaco goes back to her real estate office, and you and I go back on the G. And I, even at this great price, this unbelievable rent, which even then, uh, you say, the apartments we had looked at on the Upper West Side where I wanted to be were $800. We were looking at ground floor apartments with only the window at the back and the door in the front and, you know, like caves, and that was 800 a month. So now we get there, it's a box apartment, there's a window in every room, so there's light flooding in, flooding into this beautiful big white tiled kitchen, 
and it's 250. So Scott's like, what's the matter with you? I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, it's not the Upper West Side where I was going to have my fantasy Woody Allen, movie, Woody Allen movie. Anyway, he talks me into it because he figures, Kim, look, let's do this because then we could go out to dinner occasionally. If we took the places that we were looking at for 800 a month, that would have been it. Our whole salary would have gone into the rent and there would have been no extra money to be young and go to a movie or go to a play or go out to eat. So that convinced me. I was like, yeah, I don't want to just go home. I want to play around a little in the city. So that's why we, we did take it. And it, uh, the rest is history. No. Because then two years after that, they came to us and told us, they had three children, but they had already up and moved out to Long Island to the driveways. I always say the driveway, the Weber green grill, and you know the little car. And they didn't want back in at all. They didn't want to come back to Greenpoint. So the parents were like moving out to join one of them. And no one in their family wanted to buy the building. And um, they, you know, they were telling us because we were this young married couple and maybe we would like to. Yeah. So then there's a no, whole other story attached to that. But that's really digressing from the environment. But anyway, in the end, we, we ended up being, pulling together and figuring out how to buy that Java Street building. And then we, were, then we were really committed, right? Because now we have roots. And, uh, and also, we have income because we were just going to live on the third floor, the, the place we moved into that day and lived in t two years with the Sobochinskis being our landlords. And then when they left, we did move down to the second floor to take over their apartment. And we got that third floor back up to the shape it was when we came. And we, so you, have, you end up having three incomes as young young couple. We weren't even 30 years old yet. And so, um, and we, we didn't have trust funds or anything. <laughs> so we really were gonna have to figure this out ourselves. And that was a big help, having right. the income. Even though, even though it was much lower income back in the day, it still, everything was all relative. Right. So if that's helped us become, you know, have ownership, own it, because we could not have paid for a mortgage by ourselves at all. So, and we would have we would have never thought of that. New York City pushed us into that, you know, just, we did step up to the plate and say, okay, let's, let's go for it. But then everything else we learned along the way, uh, because I've had, you know, people come to me and say, well, how did you do that? And uh, how can we, well, why would we like to do it? Not, this is not really recently, because now that the cost of everything is so, out of the ballpark of anything like that, but they would say to me sometimes, well, we're not landlords. We don't know anything about that. We can't take care of that. We can't fix that. We don't know how to do it. Well, that scares us. That's really scary. And I said, yeah, it was really scary. And we kind of taught ourselves. Scott definitely taught himself a lot of, you know, how to make repairs. And you learn that at the plumbing shop. You go there and you tell the plumber, the guy selling you the products, I think I need to do this. Well, back then I, we actually had that's what I mean. Goldshow and yeah, Garfunkel that, uh, hardware store on Indy Street. Goldshow and uh, father and son, and Garfunkel, father and son, in there, taught you a lot of stuff. Like you'd always come back and you'd have this little bag, and these different things would be coming out, and you'd say, You told them your problem, the plumbing problem. Uh -huh. And they said, Look, Scott, they were familiar with every problem. This is what you're going to do. And then if you had a problem in between, you'd go running back and say, Oh, I did what you told me, now there's this. And they would. Say, oh, Some days yeah. I could be back five times. Yeah, <laughs> and so the, the neighborhood was that kind of like small town 
place where people were still sitting on basically yeah, pickle barrels well, point, willing to talk to you and help you. you uh, ironically, at that point, the flow was out a little bit. So people were leaving. Uh, they were trying Young. to get out of here. All, it was very old. There's just a lot of seniors. But, I mean, g in general, people were leaving. There was an exodus. No, I know, but that's what I'm saying. What was left in the neighborhood a lot was a lot of elderly right, sure. that have their but own set of they needs. They were dying, or then the families would sell and move. And the, Yeah, there was an exodus. And the, but then solidarity happened, and that brought in an influx, a new influx of Poles in the late 80s. But um, just a big arc thing. You know, we, we could talk another time. But, but I, w I would agree with Kim that uh, sort of – I don't know why this experience, what the experience is, had such a factor. I did another documentary, just environmental, I'm not sure this one affected us, but I did a big documentary on child poverty. And uh, that one, I think, affected us also. Definitely. Uh, it tied into the environmental story. So I worked on a, a for the National Council of Churches. Um, I did an hour documentary narrated by Maya Angelou about child poverty. And that one was, again, Kim and Chris went with me on my scout back in the days when we actually had scouts and, and projects. So we went to about five places around the country where there was intense poverty. And uh, we learned from that project a lot of what we know now about poverty. And uh, we didn't grow up that way, but we learned through our studies and through going to these places, a uh, Native American woman who was in Colorado with a single mom, a single father in Colorado with children, a farm family in Louisiana with children that were lost their land, lost their farm, uh, a, a woman in uh, Hartford, Connecticut with a single mom with children. So we learned through that project all sorts of things about poverty. The, all the statistics at that time that I used were from the Children's Defense League, Children's Defense Fund. Uh, and Marjorie Rutt Edelman, that's her name? Right, Edelman. Yeah, she, she did an amazing job on uh, studying child poverty when I did that project, and I used, I basically used their statistics in the project. And um, fast forward, now it's uh, 30 years after that documentary, and the statistics are similar or worse. Uh, one out of every four children at that time would wake up in the morning oh, hungry. Right. And in, in our current society, at least one out of every four, maybe more, wake up hungry children in this country. So my documentary was called America's Children Poorest in a Land of Plenty. And that one, I think, also educated us. We dug in more. We wanted to be part of a solution. We, we changed our way of thinking, I would say. Yeah. We, we, we sort of uh, became educated about that. So all these, this project, and the one you mentioned, the, the other one, Earthkeeping, uh, Earth a call to action, uh, also changed us because, again, we, I was lucky enough to go to the World Earth Summit down in Rio. Kim didn't go, but I went to the first Earth Summit. So uh, I would call her on the phone, and she'd be like crying in hot green phone and down in Rio de Janeiro. Hi, Kim, it's me. I don't really won't care. I'm Bye. in real. Oh, shut up. And she hung up on me. Yeah. So, um, you know, but I was But down. also, I think what it brought up to, and you put this, um, pictures of this, you know, the visual images in our heads, even me on the outside looking at what you were doing. The idea that America should leave the cities, like, you know, go to hell, leave them out in last place for their children too. I mean like for you'd see the subway going across the Williamsburg Bridge. You'd see the you know you included El Puente 
in that segment of urban children needing an environment. And everything that um, Luis Gardner Acosta said to us taught us a lot. That we are pretty much already, just by living here, helping the planet. We're on top of each other, we're next to each other, we go down in the subway and we hold on. We're doing a lot of really good stuff. So that should mean let's upgrade the environment for the families that are here. Let's n increase their parks. Let's give them waterfront access. Let's teach them to swim. Let's really you know, give, give them a pat on the back. You guys are here. You're staying close together. You're sharing space. You're sharing uh, everything with each other. So you need some open spaces to get out on. And uh, it just seems so totally wrong that the, the people that were getting the least from our, our government, our society, were the ones that were, you know, really being taken advantage of the most. And nothing, I mean, the schools were, you know, there was too many kids in every classroom, all, all the things that will help our next generation be the citizens that we want them to be, and also be proud, like you're, you're an inner city kid way to go you know like and look you still know about the environment and you know about the importance of keeping the planet clean and alive and you came from Brooklyn so that's like really a great thing so we got really sort of unconsciously and consciously on that bandwagon that you're not going to leave inner city kid kids out of this mix of the advantage of having space and learning about the environment and having trees Scott started manually, um, not jackhammering, but sledgehammering the concrete in all the trees you see on Java Street. Scott planted them one weekend at a time over the course of two years. And that took a lot of time to get, pe we, had, we had one tree on Java Street between Franklin and um, Manhattan when we first came. And we, then we planted the second one in front of 118. And then it began to go, like I said, most of the people owning the small buildings were, the el were older people who were living on fixed incomes at this point. They were all retired, and they did not want to say yes to Scott planting a tree because he was going to slam into a pipe. He was going to cause some kind of damage. They have no money to pay for it, and just leave well enough alone. Finally, we got the first senior citizens, um, Hetty and, and Steve, to go for it. They said, all right, because Scott was bugging everybody so much. All right, Scott, go ahead and plant a tree. What do you want? How much money do you want from me? And we, we told them, we don't want any money from you. We're going to go to the garden center in New Jersey, put this big tree ball <laughs> tree in the back of our little Honda car, and one tree at a time, we'll bring you, and we'll show you the sales slip of how much the tree cost. And then, you know, you'll pay us the $120 for the tree. And once their tree got in, um, it was just like, I don't know, I always tell people it was just like a Tom Sawyer story. Like, yeah. people kept walking by and saying, hey, that tree looks nice. Where'd you get that tree? It, it, it may, gave other people the courage, their peers, to think. And they would, you know, they'd say, it's that guy, Scott. He was bugging us so long. We said, plant a tree. So one by one, other people finally said yes to the tree. And now that's why we always, we had imagined we'd have a block where the trees would meet eventually in the middle, that beautiful city feeling of walking down a tree-lined street. And now it's starting to happen with some of the trees, except we have the problem of the long, hard so we're, we're ground beetle. Zero, ground beetle. So that story is a whole nother story. Yeah, and this is sort of our arcs of uh, depression and you know. right. That was a depressed time. So that, but it, I saw I got solace in breaking. Contact. Yeah, it was like we're not going to any more meetings. So we're we planting went, trees. Meetings, we just I just planted for trees. two years. You planted. So trees. I had a tr I had a, a, a masonry bit on my my saw. I would cut a hole in the tree. And it, uh, back then. 
people were so freaked out, like, forget about large Green beds. gorillas. We had no permit. Kim, don't say anything. You're getting in trouble. So we, 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 we <laughs> literally, I would attempt the smallest possible hole that I could and have the tree live. But because people freaked about it cracking the cement and this and that. So I would uh, measure about three feet. It was a pretty feet. dainty hole, but it wasn't tiny. Three feet, three, three or 40 feet. inches, maybe 40 inches, a 40-foot, 40 40-inch 40 hole. I would cut, score it with my uh, saw, and then I would wail away with a sledgehammer. And I would break out the concrete. And then break out the concrete, put the concrete on the curb. Then I would, I would go out to New Jersey, buy the tree, buy the manure, buy the uh, peat moss, uh, come back, try to draft. There, there was a guy now that's a drug addict in there. He's gone down. He used to help me. And then uh, sometimes a kid would help me, or sometimes I, uh, you know, somebody helped me a little bit. And I would dig down like four feet four or five feet and the soil was horrible and then I would backfill it with uh, manure compost and then I would you know get the tree and then I would even I had a wagon with my son I would fill up buckets with water and bring it up the block to water the tree to keep it alive and he tried to be telling nobody the kids had that hoses. Lived around, you can help me water you know these are new trees and when they're baby trees they need a lot of water so yeah. you can help me and they would be listening so we we did I did that for a few years I planted about 36 trees and with the biggest, at the, the end of it, I would get a, rent a truck, uh, like a, a, I would rent a U-Haul truck uh, from Long Island City or whatever. I go out to Jersey, I would buy like, at my peak, my craziest peak, I bought about eight trees. I don't remember. I would only buy, I started out with small caliper trees, but then they would be vandalized. Like Hetty and Steve, I think I put three trees oh, in yeah. that house because the first one I put in, I started so with caliper trees, like an inch and a half caliper. Kids would come down and break it in half. So then Hetty and Steve like, our tree's gone, it's broken. Like, oh, so okay, we, don't worry, so I'll, we told you this I'll plant you another work. one. So I think I planted another one on my own dime. And their tenant, remember their nice tenant? Robert the donated. He said, here, how much money do you want? Go get them another tree. Because Robert, the tenant, loved he the donated tree. And then he paid money. for the second one. Yeah. And maybe we paid for the third. We paid, yeah. So, so they was, finally, so they do have we a tree in front of their We fought for that tree pit. And that then, one tree. Then I would go up and down the block. Uh, so then fast forward, one day, I'd planted a couple dozen at that point. I wasn't finished planting. I might have been, I might have planted already 36. I don't remember. But this incredible thing happened where I, I go, and I, and I was only planting maples. I'm completely only addicted maple. to maple. I grew up in New Jersey. But what was Me in Connecticut. I came in we Connecticut. Love we love fall colors. So I only planted maples. And if people said I want something, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I, I wanted maples. Because we wanted all this colorful down So I, I was monoculture. Yes, I was planting one plant. So I, I really love maples. So uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, this strange thing happens where I see a tree. I was walking down McCarran Park, and all of a sudden I see like 30 beautiful big maples are being cut by parks. And they're being taken down piece by piece. And my heart is breaking. Because I've been planting these trees for two years. I even went to a well, you didn't know citizen pruning course. I mean, I, down. I was you into it. About that. Well, that day I asked them, what, what's going on? And they told me there's a, there's a beetle, and and there's a hole, and there's salad dust at the base of the tree. So I saw all of that that day. And sure enough, I lost a lot of my trees. So they would come in, and they would check the trees. And I now I'd planted these trees and sweat blood. 
uh, and now they're cutting. But you know, the funny thing that happened, talking about how people come I around, lost a lot like of their, their children helped them come around. Remember, Henry's grandfather didn't want a tree, right. but they took one of your trees. And then Henry's grandfather was the one when, the, when these guys from the, uh, actually they were, they were drug enforcement guys coming right. from Kennedy Airport. They taught them how to look for the Asian longhorn beetle, Binoculars. and then they let them cut the tree down. They had no, uh, you know, agricultural experience. Right. They weren't foresters. They were, and you can kind of, you could kind of tell, like, hey, where are these guys come from? Kennedy Airport, you know. So, remember Henry's grandfather guarded his tree. Even when they said, sir, sir, your tree's got a longhorn beetle and it's going to go to the other trees. Now, this was the man that didn't want a tree. And once he had his tree, he put his body in front of these guys with the saws and his tree. And he wouldn't let them cut that tree down. So it came all the way around. Like once it became his tree and he liked the way it was and he was watering it, he didn't care. He, he looked at these bows. They looked like bozos from the... Um, from Kennedy Airport, and he's just like, "No, go cut the other guy's tree down. You're not cutting mine." And he never. And I think that tree is still there, it which is. really makes you wonder. Like, it should be dead, right? If it had a beetle. It hurts because a lot of the pits on the block. But the good thing is, through the tree Jesus up grant, some a lot of my pits now have trees on. But but uh, like I planted. And they like, made some a lot of your holes bigger. The, the, yeah. Now the new regulation size. I planted size. six or eight around the astral. All of them got lost through vandalism, Asian longhorn. I mean everything. So a lot of my trees were either vandalized or longhorn. Oaks went in instead. Yeah. So so I mean, it's part of the fight. It's part of the green fight. But um, the and the other arching thing. So. Scott, I thought you were ending up. You were I finishing this up with your last, your last arch. No, there's another arch. The other arch was uh, the Native Americans that I was friends with uh, in Washington State called me on the phone. And they said, uh, we're having a, uh, I was at their summit in Rio. They said, we're having our own summit with indigenous peoples from all over the world. And uh, they promised the world summit that we would have another summit for peoples, first peoples. But uh, they're not doing it. So we're doing it ourselves. I said, oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, we're doing it ourselves. We want someone to document the, the conference. So would you like to, would you like to, you know, make a documentary about our, our uh, meeting. So I said, uh, let me talk to my wife about it. I'm not sure, you know, we'll see. So fast forward, uh, I, I tried to pitch to the networks the idea of doing a documentary about the uh, this indigenous people's Earth Summit. Uh, no one It was in New York State, it. it was upstate New York, yeah, right? No one wanted local. to do it. I couldn't get any money to do it. So then I said to Kim, I said, Kim, you know, there's this conference happening. No one wants to do it. I'd have to use our, you know, our own money to, to start it. Should we do it? And she said yes, of course, like she's crazy. So I shot film, I shot a Super 16 film, 30 rolls, uh, cost a lot of money. And uh, we went up there and we went to the summit, Kim came. You, did you do sound? No, you didn't no. do sound. Kim came. I and did have uh, done sound. I had, a I had a really good crew, I've forgotten, I totally forgot. But we stayed, I stayed up there the whole summit. Uh, Kim came, you came a couple times. Yeah. Uh, with Chris, who was... He did? I don't he, think he, he came. Yeah, Where was he? He came once again. But anyway, I, I started this documentary, and we tried to... We marketed the documentary at the New York Feature Film Festival uh, as a work in progress to try to recoup the money that I'd spent. And uh, we were unsuccessful. I was unsuccessful. I'm the world's worst business manager. Um, and so that, for me, is a burning... 
issue. It's in the basement. I have a film in the basement. And it's the famous documentary in the basement. So uh, it's uh, before I die, I want to make something out of this thing. So it's part of our, uh, my mission. And it, uh, it also informed us, like these projects were, were building blocks, right? So each person we met, I've met tribes all over the country. I've met indigenous peoples now from around the world, from Siberia, from uh, Borneo, from New Zealand, from um, the Amazon, from the Mayan Lacandon people, from the Hopi, from the Lummi, from the, uh, all these tribes, all these first peoples uh, shared with me their stories. And these were just tip of the iceberg stories. But each people would be talking about whatever their, their battle was around the globe. So it was all related to global warming. And global warming was not a word back then. No one spoke of global warming when I shot this. This was like 90, 1990, before I saw this sledgehammer on the sidewalk. That's why I saw this sledgehammer on the sidewalk, because I was so upset about what I was learning about the environment that literally the only release was a sledgehammer. And I, I literally would wail away uh, with my own sledgehammer at the cement for, for two years. That's what's therapy for me. The sound of the sledgehammer breaking the solid concrete and putting in a tree. So it's literally was either that or go to a, you know, crack up and go to a, like a loony bin. So Kim, and Kim's always listened to me rant about what I'm learning. And she's met most of the people that I've, I've met. And um, so these tribes, um, profound, profound, shared with me and from the tribes and they uh, there I, I, I can't even really explain it exactly Kim wasn't with me at one one meeting but uh, it was a, a life-changing meeting with, for me and, and I will I'll just openly say like same way Kim said this changed our life it's interesting I didn't think we were gonna pick the Native Americans but for me it was definitely the story is that uh, I was in a shoot one day, and this woman, we were shooting a story about clear cutting and the, the, uh, the spotted owl. And this woman said, "We invited you for dinner last night. Where were you?" Just like that, real quiet. And she's the wife of Kenny. Remember Kenny, that mm -hmm. big guy that was mm -hmm. singing and plays drum. And she, she, uh, she was in the car, and I, I sort of almost distracted. I didn't listen. She, and I said, oh, we're, we were getting a shot. You know, we rented a plane. We were flying through the clear cut, shooting this shot. For me, it's a big deal, right? How do you, you know, get up on a plane and shoot this? I thought, she, was she said, no, we invited you like that. She said, we're inviting you again for tonight. And we expect, we're, you know, we expect you to be there. So I was taken aback. I realized something's going on. I don't want to be there while there is. So that night, we, we went there. And uh, it was at that event that I had this experience that I can't really describe, but it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And she was speaking to me as a first people. I never had that experience of a first person speaking you to you uh, nation to nation. And I, I never experienced that. She, she stood up and she addressed this group of men, you know, and she summoned the spirit of her people. They're definitely. Definitely. There's no doubt about it. And um, 
she she raised up with these people. She's a frail little woman. I don't say her name because uh, they they also told me that we don't we don't like to say her name uh, when someone passes. There's a, 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 a etiquette about saying the name when someone passes. I don't know all the now. I probably could say the name, but that's something they don't even want to say the name. And she they taught me about the standing people. That's why I did the trees in a way too because they believe standing people are the trees. So each tribe, like that tribe, their sacred tree is the, the cedar tree. And they, they, they're all their creation-ness are around cedar tree. And she, she connected with me as an indigenous person. She was seeing my indigenous roots, which I didn't even think, I never even thought of that. What, 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 I'm from Texas, I mean, I don't have indigenous roots. But she saw my people, she definitely saw my people. And she was speaking to me through her people to my people. She said, I want you to tell my story. And that's, that, that stuck with me. So that's why we went into hot to shoot the documentary. Because I was trying to keep her promise. I promised her that I would. Mm -hmm. And so we did the documentary. I was getting paid for the doc documentary. That was for PBS. But the other documentary was Our Own Dying. And I'm not going to turn her down. So I did the documentary. I shot it. I have the footage. A lot of these people now are past, and global warming now is a, a topic. So I have I have footage, pre-global warming footage, from all over the world of people coming here to speak to us. So I, I, I have those interviews. No one else in the world has those interviews. And Except they're all in their native language. Oh, well, I have to That's transfer them. We have to get translators. I, I interviewed, if, if people had first languages, I would interview them just like you're doing in the first language so but how did you ask the questions it was very complicated so there were translators there for example one woman spoke Avenki, which is a oh, there first, were first woman from the Avenki people but she they like all first peoples they learn a language of the, their occupying people so they, for her that's russian so she speaks russian but she's bilingual she would uh i would ask her a question in english the, the, the translator would translate my question into Russian. She would then ask this Avenki woman the question in Russian. Then she would respond in her first language, Avenki. And then it would have to reverse itself. Yeah, so that's how I interviewed when people. When it didn't, because you have all the tapes downstairs with them answering in their first language Correct. and not, you know, so now you'd have to really. I have only first languages. When they, when they could speak would be first languages. Mm -hmm. And there's only a couple of people in the world who even speak these languages. So a lot of, maybe these, some of these are dead by now. I mean, they were literally, the Makushi and the Mayandak, all these languages, I, a lot of the federal collecting kind of languages, they would speak to me in their, all their first languages. So um, anyway, it's a complicated, layered reason why we, 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 we think the way we do, right? What did you say? I'd like to offer him a name. I'm writing this out loud. Scott Stockhausen, because we keep making new arts. Well, let me, before I know, you've given me so much free time, but can you talk just a little bit about your work with Stephen Bishop and Scott Stockhausen? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, we, I think that started because of wonderful social media where um, there was something put on, fa on a Facebook page that I read saying, come tonight to a meeting. Um, a little before that. Go ahead. I walked out the door, it's like everything, downwind. I walked out the door one morning <laughs> to get us uh, 
the Polish bakery. What's the name of that? Cookie Road? Cookie Road. Cookie Road. So I went down to Cookie Road, and from Cookie Road, I mean, they're buying these little cupcakes. So I'm in my little world, dream world, and I see these raging fire with flames and smoke. Oh, yeah. And I, I was like, what the hell is that? And I had my little iPhone, of course, at this point. So I walked towards the fire, and I, I was mesmerized. It was, it was bizarre. It was just, just monstrous fire, billowing smoke, and I was shooting. I shot the firemen and the ladders and the ice and everything. And I came home. I told Ken. I said, Ken, this, the, the waterfront's on fire. You won't believe it. The incredible fire. And I said, again? And it, it happened before with the Gutman property. Um, so that's how it started for me, was seeing the fire. What's that? Then Cole then Kim. Dewey and Catherine and uh, Jens, that core group, had put out a, a call to everyone who for a meeting. It, it might the land might get sold tomorrow. The burnt land, the right. land that's been this you know, might flattened. Be this is it. This is the real death knell. We're gonna we're gonna we're lose, gonna lose that parcel, which is right in the middle of the whole. Because we knew we we lost Gutman, we lost that building, the, this historic. Usually, building. when they burn, they. You know, they start. Something's that it, was it about to be. It may take ten years, like Gutman. That was on the verge of being la landmark by the Newnham Provincial Law Society. Anyway, so when I read that, I said, "Come on, Scott." It was over at El Puente. Let's go because they say it could happen tomorrow. That that the land that was might be sold might be sold tomorrow, and that's so wrong. Um, so we went down, and then we listened, every you know, to what everybody was saying, and we came home. No, we went to Teddy's for a beer afterwards, and then Jens saw us and said, Jens and Dewey and Catherine and Trina were all sitting in that table that's in the little boat out window area, and they said, hey, come on over. We you were just at that meeting. We didn't really know them, because we're kind of like 10 years apart. Maybe, I don't think Steve was there that night, no. but Steve and Dewey and Catherine and Trina and Jens, uh, they're about 10 years younger than us. So. Uh, and their kids, therefore, you know, so we, we didn't have that I direct intersection until now, until Bushwick Inlet, the final, the final process. And so we did. We moved over to their table and started talking with them. And um, we, were, we just got on board right then and there that night. And uh, I, I just, we, again, once again, a new generation of activists and environmentalists taught us a tremendous amount. They were so high energy and devoted and organized and stick to it like we're not getting off of this no matter how bad it looks and scott and i at that point we really needed it because now we're re-entering our activism with like you said we, we came out of activism retirement not work retirement um and, but we did for them and we're, we we always say to each other we're so damn glad that we did because we met some really we met Steve and Catherine and Dewey and Trina, and these are just really great people that are really devoted to trying to Ward, you know, Ward Adam, Adam Perlmutter, and they taught us a lot about just you know again once again you kind of have to be reminded all the time like don't give up, and it does help when you've got a group like that like they were not here back in in our day you know, and. Um, I don't know what came next. We just, oh, they, we kept coming up with plans. We met them about once a month at that time when it started off. Oh, no, we met over in Greenpoint Beer and Ale. We had a long Thank table there in beer. the window, yeah. And we started strategizing. We put out a call to the whole neighborhood to get other people on board. The first meeting we had had about 40 people come because everybody was 
lit by the fire. You know, they were all angry. Everybody was like, that fire for a while. Yeah. But it's just like anything else. It's just like it always is. You come down to about eight people at the end that are going to really ride it out. Most people will come to your rallies once you put the call out. But they, they really don't have the time or they, you know, they just have other interests or they're, they're, their time is too consumed with their families or whatever it is. They can't come and be on the steering committee and just keep coming and coming and coming. So you rely on them to uh, help you. Like they made great posters, some of those people that oh, only did. showed up at the rallies. You know, those great fun posters yeah. and the American flag turned upside down. And um, the, sl- the slogan over it was um, bait and switch because of... You know, our whole premise from day one was we are only asking for what was promised in the 2005 zoning. We are not asking for you to give us some extraordinary thing. In 2005, when you guys rezoned 80 blocks, you promised this middle park, and it's in the middle of Greenpoint and Bush, um, Williamsburg for a reason, because we wanted both Greenpoint and Williamsburg to feel like it was their park. And this was the deal. It was a promise. I mean, it was... All, if, if we, we couldn't, we should have signed a contract. We had no idea then what we know now. Like if, if there's any more rezoning that goes around here and people are promised some public thing, some facility or some piece of land, you need to get it like written down that you cannot weasel out of this 10 years down the road. So that's really what was holding our core group together, that we knew we were in the right. We knew we were, had already given up such a tremendous amount of the waterfront that to try to renege now, on what you think is such a huge parcel, when really you've already gotten 85 blocks of development is wrong. And so I, I just, I, the next thing I point to, I don't forget who it was, it was Ward, Ward Dennis that thought of this uh, strategy. He said to us one night, I think the only way we can get under the skin of de Blasio is, you know, they're about to do this, this rezoning all across the five boroughs. Uh, the first ground zero of the next Zoning for quality and affordability. affordability. The, the the next big, you know, um, ground zero, which would be like Greenpoint Williamsburg was in two thousand five, is going to be East New York, and um, those people are like Greenpoint Williamsburg was when they came here to do our rezoning, and. Uh, we need to go to the community board meetings where the city officials come and the developers come. And I remember those so well when they came to Greenpoint. And they, they have, it's like a, you know, a, a slideshow presentation. Well, it's like those boxes of paper we used to get to put under the sink. They come to your little community board room and they put up a projector and they put up the screen and they start showing you these beautiful renderings of these new tall buildings and on the bottom, all around the bottom are people wandering around holding their children's hand, the old people are hobbling around to the bench and everything's clean and beautiful and their general push to you is we're going to help make your neighborhood better. You're going to be so glad. We are going to help you reclaim, that was their famous word, we are going to reclaim the Greenpoint waterfront for you and it's going to help you so much. And Ward was saying, it didn't help us so much. Oh, I was saying that. We didn't, they didn't reclaim it for us. They reclaimed it for the developers. Where is Bushwick Inlet Park? That was supposed to be the one little thing we were going to get. So I went with Steve. I remember the night, um, I think Katie may have maybe drove us. A couple of times Katie had her car, and we drove to these part places in East New York because it's, it's kind of all of the locations, either the high school, they're off the subway line. You can take a subway, but then you're about a six-block walk at least to the the location where the meeting is going to be held. So if 
you know, you have to have a lot of energy because you're, you're taking a couple of trains to get there, then you're doing the big walk and it's at night and you don't know the neighborhood and, you know, it's East New York. You don't want to be wandering around lost there, really. So Katie came through with her car and, um, you know, I wrote up, I actually, I, I'm going to give you one of the things I wrote up. I found it, my, in, my introductory to the, the group. And the thing is, I never got to say every single word in the thing you'll see that I wrote up. But uh, when I started, right away, these rooms were filled with um, entirely African-American community, a lot of women. And as I started my remarks, I could hear that callback thing that African-American communities do to each other and they do in church and everything. Like if they want to give you courage, they want to say, you go, girl, you go. Come on, we're listening. You go. I could hear that. I could hear voices coming up to me a couple of times like, Go, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, uh-huh. And I thought, oh, my God, here I am, little, you know, white Kim from Connecticut, and I'm saying, I, I forgot what I was saying even because I was so swept up in the moment of realizing I have this audience of people in front of me who want me to keep talking. They want to hear what, and I, you know, the first thing I would always tell them is I'm from Greenpoint, and we were part of the 2005 Greenpoint-Williamsburg rezoning, and everybody knows about that. People were truck drivers over here. People were vendors over here. A lot of people worked here, black people, and then went back to places like East New York. And they know. They see what's happened. And I would say, I'm just here to tell you of our experience, what happened on the Greenpoint waterfront, and how I feel like it was bait and switch, how we got screwed. And so whatever these developers come to your neighborhood and tell you, they're going to build a new school. They're going to build a new library. They're going to build a new park. I said, don't believe them. They're going to come to town first and throw up their towers and tell you you're going to have affordable housing, which isn't even affordable for those of you that are living here right now. They don't look at the numbers of what is your salary now for a family of four and how much can a family of four making what you guys make. You're the ones that need the affordable, not the new people coming that will have relatively low salaries compared, relatively speaking, but you here now who clean this, I didn't say clean the subways, but this is what these people do there in East New York a lot. They do things that make New York run, but they have a couple of jobs to add up to a salary. So I was just saying, the whole deal is that the reason you're going to go for it, that they're going to help you, is you're going to end up with housing for your people that will be able to live. And then what we found out in Greenpoint was the housing really wasn't for the people making the lowest amount of money. And a lot of them have moved out, gone back home to, you know, wherever they came, even countries, moved back to, you know, Puerto Rico or Poland or wherever it was. And I looked out of the corner of my eye as I was giving these remarks. And, you know, they don't want, you can't talk forever. You can't be like, let's give. And I could see the uh, official that was representing de Blasio's office just really looking like, get this one off. She's done. Cut her off. Like, finish. Thank you very much. Well, you were Ms. kind of a Debbie Downer for us. Yeah. Finish. <laughs> get this Miss. Needless to say, as you might have intuited, Kim is the voice of Friends Well, of it turned out. I no, don't you, you, you were. Scott, he's over. She, she always was. And so if ever we needed to rouse a crowd, whether it's Community Board 1 or we were on I, there, Kim was the one who would speak for us and rally uh, us. And it, she also... When, when Mayor de Blasio came and uh, thanked, uh, thanked us in a way for keeping the fight and, and making him come through the promise, uh, Kim was the one who spoke for us for the mayor. Yeah, I, yeah I, that's, I, 
I did, I did do a lot of talking, as you can see. <laughs> but um, anyway, I think, oh, where, how did I start off on this thing? Oh, how you're asking, how did we win Bushwick Inlet? For me, in my uh, opinion, looking at what was going on, going to the, as hard as they were to go to, because, you know, they're at 6.30, uh, they last until 9.30, then you got to get all the way back here to Greenpoint. It's a big time commitment. And I didn't do every single one. But I, I think I ended up being at some key ones that um, really got their people. They already had really good people. They had really good council people representing them, smart, verbal. Uh, it's just the you want to get the, the crowd behind even those people. Even here in Greenpoint, that's why we had the rallies. And um, tr the more Greenpointers we could get out, the more people it looked like, you know, to Levin, to Lentil, and eventually to Blasio. These, this is a people's movement. It's not just some poor group of people. That's very, very important. But, but I mean, just, I think that was key, but you, when, you know, the big picture on the thing, it was a combination of everybody's different talents. Oh, yeah. It was that, Absolutely. it was, uh, we did a, a death of a deal Oh, and for development in Manhattan. That was Catherine. At the uh, possible Her brainchild. Uh, real estate company that was going to develop a tower on the property. We. Uh, How about Jens acting out? Um, it's a wonderful life, and he was the main um, yeah. landowner. Right, we, we had a we play had a little with play because Jens is Jens is a working working actor right now, and he was able to. We right. had this little seminar for the kids and. We went through, they, we, they we, brainstormed, and then they right. went out in the field and they and acted out. And all this out. was documented and put on our website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And via social media. Yeah, we yeah. had, uh, uh, we occupied the inlet, uh, made a video out of that. We had a question mark, which we shot and made a video of uh, at the soccer field. And Dewey's company usually turned around those videos right. very, very quickly. We, uh, and, and that was for free because he has his own little video company and he would just take the video, tell his, you know, he's, I don't know, 13 people work for him or something. We had a clock, uh, All of a, sudden a countdown clock on the fence, which counted down oh, the city's offer. They, the city made, I think, a $100 million offer or something. Or to Brodsky. First. To Brodsky. We offered million. him a hundred million. Like, come on, take it. It's good. A hundred so million. So then we had a countdown clock on the fence to count down the days to which the the, and uh, these that, were all that, different that people's ideas would, would uh, in get, our core group. And Kim, but the only two people at the clock every single sultry summer day were Kim and Steve Chelsea. Every single day. Everybody else was on, on vacation here, there. Kim and Steve we were there every there. morning changing With umbrellas because it was so hot. From day 59 we, we, to go to day 58 to go to day 57 to go to day yeah. 56. And then it culminated, uh, we actually spent the night on North 12th Street. In the rain and spent yeah, the night a lot of with a city congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, with uh, Borough President Eric Adams. So all of this kept going, and we kept going into the fall. So I mean, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of talent. I have to say, of all the things we've ever been involved with in the neighborhood, it was extremely inspiring and uh, gratifying. Uh, and now again, it's like these in our life. Now we're in the depression state. The post, you know, we got the park. Now we're buried in the bureau bureaucracy, red tape, boxes of paper that we've always been buried in, and, and the realization of what lies ahead, uh, and we look for bliss. And I know, for me right now, the bliss, Kim's involved on the steering committee of uh, Transmitter Park with Steve, but that, for me, the bliss is the little wildflowers that are that there Steve growing. Steve really has gotten Damien to and, come and help. And we go them. and we plant. So I always have to get my hands somehow into something. So tomorrow, one o'clock, there's a weeding. <laughs> event down here. 
So we'll, we'll, I'll be there. Uh, but also Devin will be here then, so you better come back. It starts at 9.30. Oh, good. 9.30? Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. So I'll be there at 9.30. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's. it's well, now, you know, we have to dig down. We're still on the steering committee of Bushwick Inlet. And now the next stage is they clean that one acre that you can see the grass on. We're trying to put some pop-up things happening there so people will realize this is your new, this is your first step into the new clean park. That takes a lot of effort to figure out, will we get a film over here? Will we get, um, you know, what kinds of things will come to us in that on Sundays or whenever to get make well, people in there? Yeah. But I mean, the next big thing that's going to take just as much of, of a push as getting the land saved as it, as it was is now getting the land clean and taking the, the tanks down. And um, even if just to get the rest of the stuff cleared off and cleaned like they did that one acre, it is a lot. It's a lot of effort well, and money. Well, the reality is we, we, we know we might not even be alive. Well, to see when, a real park. To see the park. Which is sad. But we're, we're, we're willing to do it for, like Kim says, the seventh generation, of, which is Native American lesson. You think ahead, who's going to be ahead of us? And uh, we have crazy dreams. We, we, uh, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a crazy dreamer. And I, I'm dreaming of uh, a more equitable world which uh, is more environmentally sound and um, that uses lessons from the past and use, uses the indigenous peoples as inspiration. We all were indigenous at one point. And it, it's funny, there's an article in the Times, I don't know if you saw it about them acknowledging the Lenape tribe and actually in beginning meetings with acknowledgement of the Lenape people. And that's, at that's the, beginning the Indians that were right around of a, here. Me a meeting, you just out of respect. We all should be aware of the indigenous peoples who were here before us. Everywhere in the world, we should be respectful. And because we all, what it does is it shows that all of us are connected to the earth, no matter where we're from. And also, it means that um, we're respectful of the living fabric of the earth and the delicacy of the earth, that it can, in fact, die. And so we're all connected. So uh, I forget where I was going with that. The Lanape example. Uh, oh, the, the vision is, uh, from my, my vision, is uh, to, to uh, Bushkin the Park to allow it to once again go where it went by originally, which is a mile inland. Allow green ways inland from the water, which means that streets will become canals, and you allow the water to then go back to its original Not path. every street. Right now you're just trying to start with, uh, what, north? I was talking about a vision. My vision, my vision wall is to allow it, <coughs> the water, because there's going to be rising water, there'll be increasing floods like Sandy. We will be at risk. All the cities on the coast will be at risk. And the only way is to find ways to cope with the rising water. One of the ways to cope is to make the edge of the water less hard to let it ebb and flow and let it ebb into the original path that is, it was a mile up to Union, a mile, it forked at McCarran Park, part of it went over there, to green it, allow it to come back in and allow greenways. And then like, maybe we, we, we're gonna start to uh, think about you know, how we get people around and maybe the car will finally die and we'll actually you know, do things that make sense with, for the planet because we're gonna eventually run out of time. So you know, we, we have to think about these. And so that's the only thing that keeps me ticking also is I think maybe we will. And again, we won't see these things maybe in our lifetime. Well, can but I ask, what do you hope for the design of the park? Um, well, 
we've seen some uh, a really fantastic design by um, Kate Orff's company, Scape. And she's very much into, she's won the um, MacArthur, Genius MacArthur Genius Award recently, just this past year. And she is all about going to a spot, like you can see in the other works she's done, which is why she won that great award, taking the environment where the park is and really using this idea of let's bring it back to the way it was. Let's make soft edges. Let's let it flood. And then when the surge goes down, it goes out and everything is still okay. And let's uh, put... Um, elements in the park like the uh we never knew what a midden was but that's a, a big high tower of um, oyster shells and there were middens around um bushwick inlet because the native americans were there shucking their oysters and then throwing their uh shells over here and so down under the ground they're and you you noticed it with the build with the generator building when they yeah, were constructing he talked them. to one of the general contractors that was on the site and asked him, have you ever, um, when you were digging down to make this basement or this garage or whatever it's going to be, have, have you found like a stash of um, oyster shells? And he said, yes, as a matter of fact, right over there in that corner. And when they threw them all out. But they were like, it's like a, in we Kate's, know it was there. in Kate's drawing and her rendering. So in other words, she was going to bring a midden to the top. It was and basically have an life. oyster pyramid so that, and there'd be like a little, uh, historical marker and the children could read about it and then say, know what I'm saying that this is because this was underground got covered up but there were so many oysters apparently this whole area even Newtown Creek was so rich such rich oyster beds that they were supplying oysters for like for the whole uh, east coast of the United States it was just all these great delicious oysters so what else am I not saying about it? I mean we I loved Kate's you know version of a park because like another thing we've learned with our seminars that we had from winter to spring once a month we had different designers come and talk to us one of the things that they're saying is that um, the great parks of the last century like Central Park like Prospect Park they were based on a um, English or old European idea of a park and now for the 21st century in a city like New York, our parks on the edge have to be more about the future. They're not going to be, you know, uh, lots of maple trees and little arbors and, you know, like the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, like the Rosebud um, Garden, the Rosebush Garden. They're going to be more like what was here on this arid, salty, windswept uh, coast uh, right here. And, and th there are young people designers that are really into thinking about that all the time and they travel all over and they look at other coastal parks and river parks and see what other countries are doing and um so they well, should say that what excites us when you know you're just as you're talking is more the passive use of a park than the active use we know ball fields will need to be there we we understand that children need to play art we understand completely the need for that and we support that kids in the south side uh, and you know need, need ball fields so I completely wholeheartedly support that but also very generous passive space and and like Kim says being very sensitive to the environment um, we're very excited about the billion oyster project we're working with them I've been privileged to be part of that since the beginning of Bushwick Inlet you know seeding the inlet and it's incredibly exciting and they're they're it's a magnificent uh, ecosystem. The, the most significant ecosystem in North Brooklyn is right there in the inlet. And the, the oysters love it. They're, they're making babies. 
So we were really thrilled. Well, there's an oyster bed planted in the middle of yeah. uh, Bushwick Inlet, the water that they can they've we been going floating, and lifting it up and looking. Floating. How are they going down there? Yeah. But I mean, as far as um, you know. If this had turned out to be the waterfront that we were dreaming about in 1992, mm -hmm. when we were going to the basements of churches and learning from Queens College, yeah. we would have had left the green ribbon would have gone from the water to West Street, just all green, 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 green. From the water, when you get to Kent Avenue, it would go from the water to Kent Avenue. So in other words, it would have been this thick block of green, 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 going from Newtown Creek, going all the way to the Williamsburg Bridge. That's what everybody in, in, in our group always talked about. And then let all the development, even the tall buildings, happen on the other side of West, on the other side of Kent. So if you want a million dollar view, a multi-million dollar view, you're gonna have it because you're gonna be way, way, way up above the flat green uh, near the waterfront and we have a lot of people here right now. This is before the buildings went up. Now with the buildings, we're gonna have even more people. We need more than like, you know, the sidewalk that's in front of the India Street Tower. You look, the, the, this is your green waterfront here, this concrete sidewalk, and then a little couple of little green trees over here. This is not what anybody envisioned. And these weren't even our people coming to those meetings. They were not big, you know, landscape architects. They were not people that had a big vision about flooding and global warming. No. They were just thinking about this will be a park for all of New York City, just the way Central Park is and Prospect Park. It, it's not just limited to the neighborhood around the park. People from around the world actually are now coming to Greenpoint and they're going to the edge because look at what we have to look at. So even back in our day when we were really envisioning the 197A, it was so. If it had been lived out to be, I don't know how that would have happened. Like the city would have had to pay off warehouses, which is not gonna happen, I know, because when they changed the zoning, then the warehouse guys knew. Kim. But I'm saying, Kim, all I'm saying just to all, go back but, to the thing but, about ball fields, Scott. On. No, just but, to go back but, to the thing. We love ball I, fields. You, you left we, the, I got a thought little, though. Okay, hold on, just keep that thought. <laughs> if it had been as wide as we were talking about, there wouldn't have been this feeling like, Oh, we've already got a soccer field. Why do we have to have another one? Because we want passive space. If it had been the way it should have been for the amount, the density of population here now and coming, you would have had this long 85 block uh, greenway that would have been so thick that you could have put ball fields over there and another one over there and four ball fields and you wouldn't have felt it. Then you could have had all the passive space. But now that they've reduced all of our space to like 1.6 acres, 27 acres, it's like, okay, if you put a soccer field down on, on this little park, you're taking up the park. Where's the passive space? So that's why it makes me so mad because you got the, the citizens, the people down on the ground that had no choice fighting about it. The, the ones with the kids that are worried about how my kid will grow up healthy and stay strong and not take drugs, I'm putting them over here on this soccer field. So is that so bad? And then the people that are like, no, I just want to sit, look at the, look for ducks, look for seagulls, feel the breeze. I don't want to have a soccer field right in front of me when I'm doing that. They're, they're, that's very needed, that, that blissful, like, where am I? Why am I here question. And now, because of the way they didn't give anything back to the people, even though Hunter Co uh, Queens College came and told us, 
they told us one of the instructions at one of the first meetings were shoot for the stars people don't let the city officials tell you you can't have that that's too expensive that'll never happen we are asking you to come here with your neighbors with your children and in your minds just imagine what it would be like because if you guys don't do it if you don't step forward that's in my essay i'm getting to if you don't step forward and be active, be involved community members, you will get what the city is gonna give you. And Scott and I, we believe that. We're like, that's right, so come on, let's go. And a lot of people around us, a lot of people with us, we all believe that. And then in 05, we, get, we got what they gave us, just like Queens and Hunter Colleges had warned us, don't sit back, don't wait for the city to come and tell you uh, what you're gonna get. You gotta step forward and say, no, this is what we want. So we did that for two years. It was written up in the 197A. The community board approved it, and in 05. They, they tucked it away, they tucked it away, and they, it had no teeth, it had no legislative Well, teeth. it doesn't, little do we so know. So the sadness for us that broke our hearts is that that battle, which would have been a culminating battle, we were told that the 197A plan would allow communities to determine their own destinies. So that's why we were willing to be part of that process, which was throughout the community, Northside, here in Greenpoint, on Java Street, the old church there. We went to meetings, various meetings over years. And the saddest thing about that is it was the entire report was put on a shelf and had no teeth. So then what followed, followed. And to Kim's question, well, how would that happen? Well, I mean, you know, we had the uh, uh, the famous, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, 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 the guy, the planner, who put in all the highways all over the city. Robert Moses. Robert Moses. So, and, and Jane um, Jacobs. Jacobs fought him and, and, and said, no, you're not going to take away uh, Washington Square Park. So, the, the means for the vehicle were sufficient, right? They, they were able to, as of right, take a, McGinnis Boulevard was one of those stretches where there were intact streets, Oakland Street went down where McGinnis is. That was bulldozed out, and as of right, all the highways, West Side Highway, FDR Drive, bulldozed through the city. In the name of progress, we were able to do it, take all these properties, and then re compensate the property owners to move elsewhere and allow for these highways. Okay, we, we could do that. We believe that the 197A plan was a way forward for a community like Greenpoint to, to have sustainable development. Sustainable development was a big tenet for the, uh, the uh, Earth Summit, the first Earth Summit in Rio. So, so yes, yeah, sustainable development means that you have greater density that saves the city, that saves the country because people don't drive cars 20 miles away, 40 miles away to exurbs they live centrally in very dense environments. So obviously, the cost to the planet is far, far less than it would cost to take these properties in the waterfront. The, 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 the you know, private law statement, you are obviously banking way in the black by taking the green space and allowing that to be a community green belt, right? Not only that, but now that we know what we know, the environmental costs, no one ever factors these in. The health costs, the hospital costs, the environmental costs. It's extremely expensive to be this greedy. 
and in unenlightened. It, it's it's not just the money that it takes to buy the land, but it's all the the the, the cascading effects on people uh, uh, that cost real money that we have to bear. So you know we it's short sighted, it's wrong, and now we're living with that, and we have to keep our you know happiness about it. I mean, if you go to a transmitter right now, there's an entire gaping wound next to transmitter where there's going to be these quaint blue corrugated sheds that I used to hate. I mean, I never loved them. Now we hate. like them. But now they're like, oh, they're with little cute, those little sheds. Nothing. Now that we're going to get a, a tower there. So, and not only that, what bothers me also in the spewing, you know, stuff now is that I look at good design, good buildings. When you walk in Manhattan, you see a building. The one I love, Bergdorf Goodman. I'm, I'm just obsessed about that building. The, everything about that building, the way it's On built. On 57th and 5th? That's Bergdorf. Oh, oh no. Well, what's the one you use? B. Alt, B. Altman? B. Altman is the one you like? B. Altman, that's on um, 34th and Lexington. So B. Altman. And now it's a science center for Cornell. It used yeah. to be a department store. But B. that building is so magnificent. It's built out of bricks and mortar. It's so beautiful the way. And it's set back. The sidewalk yeah. is very wide. These buildings it. that are throwing up are the antithesis of that. They're cheap. They're going to last a few years. They're going to be gone. They're, 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 their shelf life is very short. And so they're so shabby. They're so cheap. They're not going to last. God knows, in, in 100 years, they won't, they'll, they'll be totally gone. And not only that, they're on a flood zone, which is, is totally bizarre. And, and not only that, parks of that era were also built to last with real materials, real love, real, really, you know, built to last 100 years and beyond. These parks, so now we're, a frustrating thing we're having with parks is they're basically planning parks which will require no maintenance. Which basically means cement and astroturf. That's not our aesthetic. <laughs> We're the antithesis of that. We're like wildflowers, grass. Human beings that take care of them and get yeah, paid for human it. Being. That so, have a so job. We have a vision, our vision, and every meeting we have now with Bush Arena Park, it's like, okay, well, we need a friends group that's going to raise money. We're going to go to because you know, the, you know we can't have toilets Amazon. because they don't have anyone to you know clean the toilets or man the toilets and so if you want to have it you have to have a conservancy to pay for the build the toilets and then keep them yeah. maintained into the future it's like I thought this was a public amenity public. I thought this was like pay your taxes paying for schools and parks and no now unless you have a conservancy and the con so therefore obviously the conservancies that have the most money like Central Park like Prospect Park they have very wealthy people living right around them and they want their park and well, so they pay for it there's a lot there and you know we, we do you know you sort of like try to stay sane and, and still go forward and constructively engage things